In a book that I wrote with Kevin Mitnick, The Art of Invisibility, he and I went round and round about password managers. Kevin, he supported them because they allow for greater complexity. I, on the other hand, do not support them because if an attacker went after that one password manager and was successful, then potentially all of your passwords would be exposed. Early in my career at CNET, I found a bug in Norton Internet Security. By typing random characters on a keyboard, I could suddenly pop open the Norton Password Manager and see all the passwords that I had stored in plain text. So I haven't been a fan of password managers since. What happens if you are a developer and you need to access a variety of systems and your employer requires the use of a password manager? Well, that could get interesting. In December 2022, and again in February of 2023, LastPass Password Manager disclosed that it had been breached and potentially passwords for thousands of systems were exposed. The details, though, are interesting. In this case, LastPass said that one of its DevOps engineers had their personal home computer hacked and infected with a keylogger. In the December 2022 breach, LastPass revealed that the threat actor had leveraged stolen information to access cloud-based storage environments. In the second breach, disclosed in February 2023, LastPass revealed that an attacker was able to leverage valid credentials stolen from a senior DevOps engineer. This is the new normal. Rather than develop a chain of zero days, even known exploits to break into a system, why not just walk in through the front door with some senior developer's credentials? It's much easier and it's less noisy. Of course, the senior developer had access to a company source code. The point is we tend to rely on tools out of convenience. Rather than developing a password schema and only write down the first part of that, which is something I recommend, we have password managers. And rather than parsing code from source, there are code editors. In a moment, I'll introduce you to two researchers who presented at DEF CON 31 on how the code editor used by 80% of the developer community today had a flaw. It's now fixed. Still, it's a reminder that even the code tools that we use and rely upon daily, well, they can sometimes be faulty. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing how there's no standard threat model for code editors today, and how, even though this is a tool we probably use every day, sometimes even without thinking, we need to be checking them for vulnerabilities. One of the more interesting talks at DEF CON 31 this year was entitled Visual Studio Code is why I have workspace trust issues. From their abstract, the researchers state that modern development tools offer increasingly advanced features and deep integration into ecosystems, sometimes at the cost of basic security measures. 
Code editors, then, have tried to counterbalance this by introducing new lines of defense, i.e. workspace trust, leading to a cat-and-mouse game to restrict access while keeping those features available by default. I think you can see where this is going. So I wanted to talk to the presenters to learn more about this trust issue. All right. Uh, is it rolling already? Or? We're rolling. Already. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Paul Gerste. I'm a vulnerability researcher in Sauna's research and development team. And yeah, I love to break web things, especially in the JavaScript world. I used to be a developer, but then I got hooked on CTF competitions uh, and yeah. Now I'm a Vuln researcher in the R&D team, and instead of solving challenges and writing write-ups, I audit open source projects and write blog posts about it. Um, hello, my name is Thomas Chauchefoin. Uh, I'm French, as you may guess, uh, from the south of France, uh, but every day is sunny. Uh, I've been in this uh, security industry for six years now, and uh, I've been a Vuln researcher with Sonar for two years. And actually, I joined the same day as Paul, and we share the same passions and uh, roughly do the same work. So. Sonar is a company that looks for security vulnerabilities and hotspots in code review using static analysis. Sonar helps developers to, to write clean code. Um, and under clean code, uh, that means that it's code that's uh, of quality. So you have less um, functional bugs and uh, also that's safe. So you have less uh, security bugs or vulnerabilities. And uh, we're trusted by more than 7 million developers. And um, we're pretty proud of what we're doing. So before we get started, I want to establish that before both of these men became professional security researchers, they started with Capture the Flag competitions. In early episodes of The Hacker Mind, I talked with members of the Plaid Parliament of Poning, the team that has won the most DEF CON CTFs. And some of their members today are working for the NSA and Google. So I asked Paul and Tomas about the CTF scene in Europe and how it might be different or not. Yes, so I'm from Germany, and here in Germany we actually yeah do have quite a good and strong CTF scene, I would say. So um, I got into it just by uh, starting my studies on IT security here in Bochum, Germany, and here we have a student team. It's called Fluxfingers, and uh, we basically do a, a thing called Flux Rookies, where we introduce new people to the CTF scene. Um, and because it can be quite hard. Uh, the, the top players that are experienced, they want hard challenges. Uh, and if you start out, uh, you will probably run against the wall and it's, it won't be fun. So we try to have beginner-friendly challenges and we help people out. Uh, so that's how I got started. Uh, and I think a lot of the teams in, in Germany and throughout Europe are based on yeah, student teams, university teams, because there you have yeah the local uh, thing where you can join together, meet up, play together there, which is always uh, more fun than over Discord or online. So Paul's from Germany. Thomas is from France. I think it's roughly the same thing in France, right? Uh, it's mostly we all start as students and we don't know it's a profession yet. So we just have fun. We play, we discover new stuff. I think we build knowledge with CTFs all the time. In my case, uh, my only exposure to security before working in this industry was through CTFs. So everything I knew at the time was thanks to CTFs. So I think it's uh, really powerful. So are there any major CTF competitions in Europe? 
there's this website called CTF Time, where there's a list of all the big CTFs, and you have uh, you can rate them, and they have uh, a rating then uh, score where you can see which ones are rated higher and which ones are rated probably lower. So you can go on there uh, to see, uh, for example, the CTF that me and my team are hosting, the Haklu CTF, is uh, pretty old. We do it since 2011, and it's also one of the highest rated ones. Um, but then, of course, in other regions of the world, uh, for example, DEFCON CTF, uh, there you have the very prestigious names uh, and also uh, recent additions from the Asian room. Real World CTF uh, is also a pretty cool one uh, that happens every year that, yeah, based on the name, is very close to the real world. Uh, they have one-day challenges or sometimes even zero-day challenges where they just give you a piece of software in the latest version and in a maybe slightly weird configuration, but then they say, let's go. You need to find a way to get remote code execution. So it's becoming very uh, close to the real world. So you're successful with CTFs. How does one take that experience and turn it into a professional pen testing career? Yeah, I guess, uh, as Tomar already said, you start out just to have fun, just to play, just to see what is this thing, what's going on. And then you learn a lot of your practical skills. For me, uh, I was playing it while studying. So in university, I got the lectures and the uh, formal education and uh, everything in theory. And then I could use some of that in practice and learn even more practical skills with CTFs. Uh, I think there's a big difference uh, between hearing about something in a lecture or doing a small exercise uh, for it and actually going through the full path of finding a vulnerability, exploiting it, uh, and maybe even reporting it, uh, making a write-up about it. Um, so yeah, you you learn a lot there. And uh, then at some point, uh, the world becomes the challenge, if you want to say so, uh, where you can just take any, uh, let's say, open source project and start auditing. Uh, but of course, um, in the CTF, you know there is something. And in the real world, you don't know it. There probably is always something, as we all probably know, but um, yeah, you don't really know it. So during the my CTF career, if you want to call it a career, um, I also built up a high frustration tolerance uh, where if you play 48 hours CTF, of course with sleeping breaks, but if you don't find anything uh, playing one challenge for two days straight, uh, it can be pretty frustrating. But still, you learn a lot along the way uh, of new technologies or of things that don't work. And the next time you know that they don't work. And in the end, you can read somebody else's write-up and then you will learn what the vulnerability was and how to exploit it. Lately, there's been the emergence of bug bounties. In Episode 9 of The Hacker Mind, I talked with someone who traveled the world with HackerOne, getting paid to find bugs in various code bases. So has either Paul or Tomas ever done any bug bounties? Uh, yeah, I did some bug bounty in the past, and um, I don't do it uh, anymore. Um, you know, there are like different kind of bug bounties in practice. You have uh, the famous one, the FACA ones, the crowds, the platforms, um, kind of web bug bounties. There are also some other way um, to sell bugs in a way that would be disclosed uh, with like competitions like Pond to On. Um, so I stopped doing this web bug bounties because it's most of the time only black box um, auditing you some they give you a website you have to break into it uh, but don't you don't get access to source code or anything and it's i find it much less fun <laughs> uh, i really love to have code and just 
dig into it, try things, and just like it, I find it more creative uh, and less, you know, always the same thing. Uh, but we we still played uh, Pontoon together, uh, which was on our uh, R&D team. Um, it was pretty cool. Uh, different kind of targets than the one we are used to. So we can call it bug bounty uh, in a way. Speaking of bug bounty, uh, sometimes we also do get bug bounties for the things we report uh, from our yeah sonar work uh, stuff. So every time we find something, we report it. And some of the projects do have a bug bounty. Uh, I think... Uh, one cool uh, one was that uh, the bug bounty that we got from Microsoft uh, for one of our things we found in Visual Studio Code, which we gave to charity. Uh, and yeah, it's also <laughs> quite a fun story because one year after we found something with the same impact and they said, oh, wait a minute, last time we basically awarded this by error. So sorry, you're not getting it uh, this time. Uh, but yeah, sometimes we even get bug bounties like this. And I also have to say, I uh, prefer uh, yeah the way how we do it right now. It, we we get paid to just do the research, and uh, we don't have to. Basically, we are not dependent on the bug bounties like you would be if you were a full time bug bounty hunter. Uh, so this allows you to go much more into depth into certain topics and not just to hunt all the low hanging fruits to get something. And you're also not being driven by the same incentives, right? You're not looking for money, you're looking for bugs, you're looking to improve uh, the security of this product and this project. Uh, you're not just trying to make money. So it's also less frustrating when things go wrong with disclosure, uh, but you're not getting paid or anything. Uh, so this is the best way to do big bounty in a way, not getting the money. The presentation that Paul and Tomas gave at DEF CON was about two vulnerabilities in Visual Studio Code extension. These are CVE 2021-43891 and CVE 2022-30129. This was the case where they found and reported one vulnerability and then a year later found another vulnerability similar to the first. Uh, it's called it's called an extension with practice. It's a built-in module that you can disable. Um, so it's called extension by Microsoft, but in practice, it's just a feature of the code editor. So why were they even looking into this? What led them to even start investigating? I would say it's the most popular IDE right now, uh, at least in certain, let's say, language communities. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of people are using it. Uh, it's a big impact if you find something in there, right? Because you directly affect almost 80% of all developers, essentially. Uh, so it's a pretty interesting target. Yeah, just because of that. Uh, and then it's also a big uh, code base. I think 800,000 lines of code. There's a lot of opportunity for stuff to go wrong. Um, so that's why we wanted to look into it. And we also uh, yeah, were seeing other people, other researchers find bugs in there. And some of them were looking interesting because there's yeah, a lot of different attack surfaces. And in general, uh, this is a tool for developers. So it's not like a server that's running somewhere that you can di uh, directly attack over the internet. It's something people run on their own. And uh, so it's also an interesting uh, context. It's uh, an interesting a threat model, let's say, because for a lot of different developer tools, it's not very clear what's the responsibility of the tool and what's the responsibility of the developer. Am I uh, or should I open this unknown file with my IDE? Can something go wrong? 
is it my responsibility to not do it and to vet the file first or is my IDE safe enough to block anything malicious? Um, so that was also interesting to us. This brings up a good point. If you want to attack a vendor, you might want to go through the developers writing code for that vendor's product. Again, yeah, we've seen a lot of like in the wild campaigns against developers. I think the most recent example and maybe the most um, newsworthy one was on LastPass. You know, there was this um, one day vulnerability exploited. Um, so allegedly, we don't have all the details. Um, so one day vulnerability exploited against a DevOps engineer uh, was working from home and they kind of broke into their home network from the outside with this vulnerability and they got access, I think, through some killing uh, to their work laptop. Um, and then they got access to uh, LastPass production servers from success. So in the end, if you compromise developers, you will likely get access to production systems. You will likely get access to source code, which is a big asset for companies these days you will maybe get access to secrets and you know api keys everything it's 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 very impactful in the end to to target developers by now we should all know what a zero day is but paul mentioned one day so i want to make sure we get a definition of that so i, I think in general we call a zero day everything that's not known outside of like a small private circle. I think the, the name comes from uh, this notion that if it's a zero day, you add zero day to uh, protect yourself to, uh, against this vulnerability. So it's just came out publicly. There is no available workaround or patch. Um, and in general, we also use this terminology to say uh, like a zero day is something that you know, maybe your friends know, your colleagues know, but the public is not aware of, the, of this vulnerability. So nobody can uh, protect themselves against it. And one day is, uh, uh, also we can call it an day, uh, to say it was one day, two days, three days, uh, any number of days you want. And it's a way to say that it's it's something that's known, that's kind of track. It's likely got a CV uh, ID before. Uh, maybe there are patches available, maybe there are workarounds, uh, but maybe in this case, the patch was not uh, deployed. It was not applied on a given system. So you can still break into the system uh, with a one day, so with a known vulnerability. So you've targeted the system, which is used by nearly 80% of the developers worldwide. I imagine, given that it's used by so many people, that it's fairly hardened. But then you must find some area of the codes that are less locked down, and you begin pursuing it until you find some bugs that are, well, very interesting. I assume you go through a lot of bugs that aren't interesting. Yeah, and uh, like Paul said, it's uh, 800 thousand line of code. It's huge. It's like you could build small operating systems with much less line of code. It's uh, it's a huge project, so there will be bugs. And like you say, there will be useless bugs in the end. Um, but for us, what was interesting is uh, that for such tools, you want to get a deep integration uh, with um, the ecosystem of every language. And VS Code supports many, many languages. I think it's one of the reference uh, code editors for JavaScript, TypeScript. I know a lot of people doing PHP in it. And you need to, to integrate with all these ecosystems to, to offer uh, features to help you uh, download all dependencies, uh, scan the code, and help you to develop faster and better. Um, so because of these deep integrations, it's also easier 
maybe for attackers to find uh, security flaws uh, because you will be calling a lot of external binaries. You will be trying to uh, do, the, do your best to offer a lot of information to the user, but maybe to collect information, you need to uh, run code from the user that comes from the local project. You may need to call remote servers and exchange information with them. Um, so a lot of things will be happening and a lot of these things uh, aren't really under control of the visual studio code uh, developers. Uh, they like if you, uh, in our case, we found a vulnerability into Git extension. And uh, what's critical is that if you uh, if you develop uh, VS Code, you're a VS Code developer, uh, you write the Git extension, you will call Git, and Git will do all the hard stuff related to Git for you. You don't need to re-implement Git uh, in your in VS Code. Uh, but it also means that every single vulnerability that affects Git will affect VS Code. And you cannot do anything as a developer to prevent this from happening, except not calling Git anymore. But you need it to offer this deep integration with um, projects and the usual developer workflows. So it's a weird trade-off of, I need to do complex and maybe security-sensitive things to be nice for the user. Uh, and I have no control on all these binaries and all these other components are working internally. Uh, so it's really hard to, to, to remember to make everything safe and to know what to look at. So we've talked a lot about Microsoft, but remember this was also a Git problem as well. I asked Tomas and Paul to explain this more. Was this an integration flaw with Git or was there some actual code flaw? We found two bugs in the Git extension. Uh, the first one was uh, related directly related to Git. So when you uh, develop with Git, you can um, you can configure the tool. Uh, you can have a system-wide configuration for all your system, all your users. You can have um, user specific configuration in your own folder to, uh, I don't know, set your own name when you commit, uh, set your email address or just some uh, general uh, features of Git. And then you have the project level configuration uh, that's in the .git folder that comes with your project. And um, there could be and there are sensitive options uh, that you can set in these configuration files. Uh, for instance, in our case, uh, we've demonstrated that if you ship and if you send somebody a Git project with a malicious configuration um, that executes, could execute malicious commands, uh, one day we'll open it in VS Code. Um, VS Code would directly uh, run Git and say, oh, can you please look into this folder and try to run some actions, like give me a status update of all files that were modified since the last time uh, I've looked at them, or these kind of integrations. And uh, because it uses this uh, malicious configuration, uh, we would be able to force the user to execute um, arbitrary commands on the system, which is never something that you want. And they fixed it uh, by first asking you if you trust a folder or not. So they call it workspace trust. If you don't trust a folder, this extension won't run anymore. So it's kind of safe. Uh, but if you click I trust, this vulnerability is still present. So they use this new trust-based system uh, to kind of try to let you evaluate the situation. Uh, do I know where this code is coming from? Or is it just a random zip file coming from the internet? And depending on this choice, they will take riskier or less risky actions. And so the other one was uh, related to protocol handlers. 
So, you know, when you go on your web browsers, you type HTTPS, colon, slash, slash, it's an HTTPS link. Uh, the browser knows that it's going to have to connect to the internet and, you know, do a DNS query, and then an uh, HTTP query or SSL and uh, display you the results. But if you type something like a file, colon, slash, slash, the browser will say, oh, okay, the user wants to access a file on my system. Uh, so I will display these files. Um, and every every app on the desktop can register this protocol endless. So in the case of VS Code, they registered VS Code colon slash slash. And it's really practical, uh, it's really useful for developers. Uh, like if you go on a GitLab instance, you get this uh, clone in my ID button. So you click it, it's, uh, the, the system will see this VS Code link. Uh, it will notify VS Code that, okay, somebody's trying to clone a uh, Git repository uh, with VS Code. So VS Code will show up and say, do you want to clone this folder? Yes, no. Why do you want to clone it? I want to put it on my desktop, for instance. And then it calls Git to clone this repository. And we found that in the way uh, this operation was done, so like it needs the address of the repository to clone. Uh, and it's, it needs to give it to Git. Um, but the way it's done, uh, we could inject additional arguments to the Git invocation, and we could force Git or trick Git into executing an arbitrary command instead of cloning the repository. So basically, you would go online, I don't know, GitLab, GitHub, you would see this uh, clone with my um, IDE buttons, and you would click it. If you accept uh, cloning this repository, an arbitrary command would be executed instead, and it would be uh, chosen by the attackers, obviously. So it requires interaction, but it's something that's part of everybody's workflows. Uh, I use it personally, <laughs> or maybe I use it a bit less now, uh, but it's something that's it's made to be useful. It's made to be part of your workflow. It's made to make your life easier. So everybody's using these kind of features. And it's really hard to defend against it, uh, except if you start removing every single link on which you are clicking, uh, which is not easy. I also want to know what sort of tools one would use to discover this type of vulnerability. In other words, are you parsing the 1,000 lines of code statically, or are you running a dynamic tool such as fuzzing? So first of all, the first thing we do in every audit is we use our own product, uh, which is a static analysis tool, to check the code for us. Um, and if it finds something, then we can just use it, verify it, and directly report it. And um, yeah, if it doesn't find anything, which I think never happens, it always finds at least something vague uh, that we can then look uh, more into uh, yeah then we have to do it manually and then yeah we also use code editors uh, or code viewers for us we don't edit it uh, but uh, yeah we we just read a lot of code and uh, then of course we also set up the application to have a debugging setup to poke at it uh, a little bit dynamically but uh, yeah regarding tools it's uh, our own stat static analysis engine and code editors. And what's cool with VS Code is that you can, so basically we've been looking at the code of VS Code in VS Code, and we can also debug VS Code with VS Code's debugging features. So you, it's why it's so practical and everybody loves it, right? It's really well integrated. And even for us, when you do security research in general on such things, getting the right debugging setup and even like being able to build projects could be uh, could take some time, could be a tedious task. In the case of VS Code, it was really, really useful and easy. So you get these bugs and you're going through them and you find one that's interesting. I wanted Paul and Tomas to walk me through the timeline of when they realized they had the real thing and 
what they were doing in the next few days. So we've been reporting so many vulnerabilities in the past two years. We've been in the uh, Sonar research and development team. Uh, we have uh, like a really uh, well like established disclosure process. So once we have the bug, uh, we think that maybe something, we confirm it. So we try to, okay, let's say, weaponize it. In practice, we're not making it like a dis distributed malware or anything. We're just making pop uh, calculator, which shows that we could force the user to execute a simple calculator, which is uh, you know, nothing crazy, but it's a visual and you see and you know that the command was uh, correctly executed. Uh, so once it's confirmed, we went through the MSRC platform. So it's uh, like a bug bounty platform, but it's specific to Microsoft. You would register, you create a new submission, and you put all the details in there. Uh, so we, we have a small advisory of uh, our observations. What's the impact of the vulnerability? How can you exploit it? And how we think it should be remediated. So we share all this information for the two bugs. Um, so let's say between the discovery of a bug and at the time we create a new submission on this platform, it's likely two or three days. It's uh, it's easy for us to create this uh, this advisory and uh, and share it. And then I I think Microsoft tries to to this 120 day kind of uh, disclosure uh, policy, uh, but I don't think they apply it for every single bug. But basically, they promise they will get back to you uh, in a short amount of time. And in our, in our case, everything was fixed uh, within. I would say two months, uh, which is, I think, quite efficient because I think it, internally it needs to get dispatched from the security team to the developers. And then the developers need to think, okay, in my next sprint, I'm going to fix it. And then they need to fix it. It has to go through reviews. And when you fix a security bug, you don't want to leave the patch out in the open uh, for everyone to see. You want to directly release a new version that everybody can install and update to uh, to benefit from this patch. Uh, so I also think they need to kind of uh, align with release dates and everything. Um, so I think the two months let's say delay is not crazy, like for, for companies the size of Microsoft. And for us, it's it's perfect because we use this 90-day uh, uh, disclosure policy um, delay. I think it's pretty standard in the industry. Google Project Zero has been, uh, been using it for a long time now. Um, and basically, we say, okay, we report everything. And starting from this day, we give you 90 days to fix it. And um, if you... If you patch everything before, it's all good. Everybody's happy. And over 90 days, we will uh, come back to you and say, okay, maybe, like, did you start working on it? Can we help? Uh, can we maybe give you a patch? Can we make things faster? And if after these 90 days, uh, nothing was fixed, uh, we may release a public advisory for people to, to be able to defend against these bugs. Uh, because if they are ever exploited in the wild or if they are already known by other, other people <laughs> in this space, um, it they may get exploited, uh, and we want to give ways uh, to VS Code users to uh, protect themselves. But in the end, Microsoft was always on time, and uh, they always fixed everything um, pretty quickly. Oh, I would say that's that's pretty much it. Um, I mean, this was yeah specific to Microsoft, but it's pretty similar with all the other vendors. Uh, some of them are really responsive and. I think the record was that things were fixed and deployed hours after our report, uh, which is very cool to see. Uh, sometimes uh, they do take more time. Sometimes we have to annoy them a little bit more via email to, hey, do you have any patches? <laughs> Please fix this. Um, but in the end, uh, almost every vendor fixes uh, the vulnerabilities we report. Uh, so 
it's a nice impact to see that the whole ecosystem is getting more secure by this. So in the end, did they get one or two CVEs? Uh, so we got two CVEs. So I like really like the bug class, like the, the reason why this bug exists uh, is different for the two cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they are kind of close in the code and kind of in the same components, um, they are got two distinct CVEs. The first bug that was using the Git local configuration uh, got a CVSS of 7.8. And the second one, based on uh, protocol endless, got a CVSS of 8.8. And I think something that we still need to mention in these cases, um, this bugs require interaction, interaction from the user. You need to clone or to import a malicious zip file uh, that somebody just sent you or hosted somewhere. Uh, in the case of a link, you need to click the link. and do a few actions. So it requires interaction. It's not like, uh, you know, zero click, ASCII, something. But I think in the context of code editor, it's fine. It's it's action you're going to do in your day-to-day workflow anyway. Um, so we can say it's still a risk. And also uh, the attack vector, you know, in the CVSS, you can be local, you can be remote, you can be a network. And it's called remote code execution, uh, but I think a proper term, a better term for it would be arbitrary code execution. Um, it's remote, but because the attacker is remote, not because from the remote uh, position, they can directly attack you, right? Because of the interaction requirement. Uh, so CVSS for such vulnerabilities is a bit tricky to get right. I think it's one of the pitfalls of CVSS system, uh, but it still yeah, tells you, you may want to update your VS Code instance. So you're a researcher and you found two vulnerabilities in Visual Studio Code, which is used by roughly 80% of the developer market today. So would that be a dangerous scenario for anyone not patching this? Because of actions that would be part of your your workflow. It's I would maybe clone some uh, dependency to review the de- this dependency in my code editor because I mean all developers are using code editors. We as security researchers, we are also using code editors to read code because it's it's what they're here for. Um, so every time you want to read code and you don't trust it, it's it's tricky, right? Because you're opening unsafe code, and if you uh, if you trust a folder a bit too much, and like when VS Code now tells you do you trust this folder, if you say yes, you're gonna get compromised. Um, so that's why why it gets tricky. And it's not only IDEs, right? Uh, Tomar also found uh, a similar vulnerability in command line uh, shells and shell integrations, where if you have your command line prompt to basically show you the current Git branch or if files have been modified or not, uh, this will run the same Git commands under the hood. So instead of opening a potentially malicious folder with your IDE, where you might think, okay, maybe my IDE does something not so good here, uh, you might want to only go into the folder in your command line. And even that could get you compromised. Whereas I think most people would think, oh, if I only enter the directory with my shell and maybe use the cat command line utility to look at the contents of a file, nothing can go wrong, but even there, something could bite you. It showed us again that in the world of developer tools, uh, there's no clear boundary of uh, responsibility between the user and the tools. And for every tool, it's kind of different. So as a developer or anybody who uses developer tools, you really have to be careful if you use third-party projects, zip files, or 
Yeah, so there's the classic trade-off between convenience and security. Yeah, so we also reported this uh, kind of behavior to the Git maintainers. We said, oh yeah, uh, at no point, at no point, uh, Git should execute things on my behalf uh, just because I got a Git repository from the internet um, and I got into the wrong folder with my tools. Maybe it should be disabled by default. Maybe we should only. Uh, it should only pass the system-wide configuration and the user-wide configuration, and by default, never run or never take anything from the local configuration unless I explicitly trust it. Kind of the VS Code workspace trust feature, but for Git directly. Uh, but they say no. If you if you trust somebody or something enough to get the code from a remote location, uh, we believe that it's uh, on you. You have to be aware of this of this pitfall of Git. And it's where we kind of disagree because every time uh, we present this weird behavior of Git uh, to people, to developers, to security experts, we all get surprised. Everybody gets surprised of this behavior. You never expect uh, that by default, some tool would maybe help somebody to compromise your system. Um, for the developers of Git, they know it. It's part of the threat model, but it's not part of the expected threat model that everybody has in mind when they use Git. And that's why this slight distinction is really important for security. If nobody's aligned on what should be safe and what should not be safe, everybody will get surprises and it's not the kind of surprises I want to, to get. So what's the general takeaway from all of this? I think a good takeaway of this research um, is that basically if you don't trust a Git repository, you should not use Git. It's, uh, and Git is everywhere. It's in your code editor. It's in your shell prompt. It's in every single developer tool. And the thing is, it's inherently unsafe to use a Git repository that you don't trust. Um, so it's something to, to be aware of. And while this code shows you this prompt before running any Git action to, to ask you if you trust a folder or not. Uh, for many other tools, it's not the case. They don't have the same trust-based system. They just run commands directly. Uh, like Paul was saying in this uh, shell prompt, that means if I have a fancy terminal as a developer, I like to have fancy stuff. And even as a security researcher, I like to have fancy stuff on my laptop. I just get into the wrong folder that I got from GitHub or anywhere, I get compromised. It shouldn't be that easy. Um, and I think there is, this is why we have a, this weird trade-off between I want a deep integration with everything, uh, but I want to be safe. It's kind of exclusive. You cannot get both, the best of both worlds. Um, you need to remove some fancy features of your favorite tools if you want to be safe. And uh, if you know that everything, all the code you're reading comes from your colleagues and you, could, you trust them, you trust everybody, uh, you get maybe nicer tools and visualizations, uh, but it's really at the depend of your security. For me, I really like to see all these trust-based systems, but you have to use it right. And I think uh, in general, um, editors publishing these tools that kind of embed these trust-based features should tell you, if you click yes, it's on you and you will get compromised. Uh, because I still think that when you get this kind of screen, um, you will likely want to say yes, because it's weird screen is bugging you and you don't want to take the time to read everything and you just want to say yes and I did it and I have done it all the time and now I stopped because I know it's really unsafe to do it now uh, and I think in general everybody should be um, more upfront about this stuff say if you click yes something bad will happen and it's on you 
I'd like to thank Paul and Tomas for coming on the show and talking about their research into the code editor and the two vulnerabilities that they found in Visual Studio Code extension. There's always the convenience of swatting away dialog boxes and warnings, but we have to remember that there's probably something behind that. Be careful when globally accepting something. There may be cases where you don't want to extend that trust. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I have some great conversations coming up with the rise of bots, the threat from China and Vietnam, and some files coming out of Russia that are the equivalent of the Snowden files here in the United States. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out on these. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, buy-for-all secure. The makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.